Hello and welcome to The Intersection. My name is Mark Riley. Thanks for joining us. In this episode, the walls are closing in around Donald Trump as his former right-hand man is found guilty of contempt of Congress. The January 6th before and after of Missouri Senator Josh Hawley, my hero. Then there's the issue of the missing Secret Service texts from the period around the Capitol insurrection. I don't want to say I told you so, but Republicans are now going after LGBTQ rights. When will it all end? First, Donald Trump, his buddies, enablers, and now deserters. The latest January 6th committee hearing wasn't particularly flattering to the former president, and that is putting it mildly. A dereliction of duty is how the 187 minutes of Trump's do-nothingness on January 6th has been framed by the committee. The committee now having held its eighth and final hearing of the summer last week. As is his habit, Donald Trump called the hearing a partisan witch hunt. That would be tough to prove since the committee has done its work quite thoroughly. They've taken testimony from his allies and from his former staff. They've also seen video footage showing Trump refusing to intervene as the Capitol was being stormed. That's where the 187 minutes comes in. Trump didn't act until it was clear that Congress had certified the election of Joe Biden. Even then, he did not want to concede defeat. In one instance, the committee presented evidence of a call from a Pentagon official to coordinate a response to the insurrection in real time. That call went unanswered because, according to a White House lawyer, and I'm quoting here, the president didn't want anything done, end quote. It gets worse. An unidentified witness testified that at the very moment Trump tweeted an attack on Vice President Mike Pence, his Secret Service detail was trying to figure out how to lead him, hence that is, to safety. A cynic might take all the testimony taken thus far and conclude a criminal case against Trump would be in order. I've said in the past I didn't think the Department of Justice would bring a case against him, not a criminal case anyway. And keep in mind the January 6th committee can do no more than send their findings to DOJ. Now, I'm not so sure. There have been some extraordinary, and I do mean extraordinary, revelations that have come up about Trump's conduct or misconduct, depending on how you want to look at it, during the course of the January 6th insurrection. Trump's egomaniac fixation with stopping the Electoral College tally before it could certify Biden could well be the straw that broke the camel's back. That this man is completely unfit for office has gone from a firm belief by his critics to hushed acknowledgement even by his more rational supporters. Sadly, many of them have turned the other way, refusing to even watch the committee hearings because the evidence presented doesn't suit their political construct. How sad. It may well be that this committee's work has started a ball rolling that cannot be stopped. Let's see now. There's evidence Trump may have defrauded the American public and even his donors. There's the plan to send false slates of electors to tip the Electoral College vote in his favor, and other evidence that he plotted to overturn the legitimate results of a Democratic election. Most galling 
is the fact that even after the insurrection, the same Republicans that pleaded with Trump to say something to stop the violence then turned around and voted to overturn those same election results. Are the walls closing in on Donald Trump? Maybe not on him just yet, but the door has slammed shut on his one, one-time best bud, Steve Bannon. He's been found guilty on two counts of contempt of Congress for refusing to testify before the January 6th committee. Bannon is another of Trump's inner circle whose words do not match their deeds. When first called to testify, he sold wolf tickets, threatening to go, quote, medieval on prosecutors. However, when it came time to back up his words with deeds, he folded. He never testified, nor did he offer any defense at all. Steve Bannon is like the quintessential trash talker, who, when it comes down to it, is little more than a punk. After ignoring the congressional subpoena to the point where he got charged, and remember, that this is not a simple thing, being charged with contempt of Congress. He did briefly address a committee hearing. He told the panel that his boy, Trump, planned to declare victory in the 2020 election no matter what the outcome, and that that was a plan that had been in place well before the insurrection, and actually well before the election had been finished. Imagine that. This is a guy who stood up and decided and told his inner circle that he had won the election before the election had actually taking place. He had planned well in advance to say he won no matter what. That's incredible to contemplate. Incredible to contemplate. With friends like Steve Bannon, well, no matter. Bannon wanted to remake America in the image of something he never actually experienced himself. Donald Trump, in my judgment, was a vehicle to Steve Bannon, a means to an end. He still wants to take the country back to a time when everyone knew their place. Blacks, Latinos, women, the LGBTQ community, everyone. Sadly enough, he was around Trump long enough to see part of his ugly agenda realized. That would be the Supreme Court and other federal judgeships, which have gone to Trump appointees and have already begun shaping the American judicial landscape. And did he want to do this by lawful means? Apparently, not all the time. Keep in mind, Bannon got busted by federal prosecutors in New York for running a fraudulent scheme to allegedly help Trump build the wall along the Mexican border. One of the former guy's last acts as president was to pardon, guess who? Steve Bannon. So you see, that circle remains unbroken. In case you're wondering, contempt of Congress, which Bannon has now been convicted of, is a misdemeanor, punishable by fines of up to $100,000 per count and up to 12 months in prison per count. Bannon says he plans to appeal. Good luck with that. Up next, speaking of punks, we look at the case of Missouri Senator Josh Hawley, who stood in solidarity with the January 6th insurrectionists until he didn't. This is The Intersection. You're at The Intersection with Mark Riley. It's what summer listening is all about.
Join the conversation on my Facebook page at markreillymedia.com. Welcome back to The Intersection. The January 6th committee has unearthed some terrifying testimony on the lengths some people in government went to subvert a legal election. It has also provided a bit of comic relief. So it was that Missouri Senator Josh Hawley became the butt of many jokes on the Internet. Hawley has promoted his clenched fist salute to the insurrectionists in his fundraising material. It goes without saying that he was one of the most vocal lawmakers supporting Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the election. Hence, what he obviously thinks is an iconic photo giving a clenched fist salute to the criminals who stormed the Capitol. What's funny about this, you ask? The committee released video footage from inside the Capitol, and guess who was running out to get away from the very people he had saluted earlier? Yep, it's Josh Hawley. He ran away from insurrectionists. He helped create and he helped nurture. His home state paper, the Kansas City Star, raped him over the coals, calling him a laughingstock, which is not a good look when you're a United States senator. Your hometown paper calls you a laughingstock. And so he is. He is a punk on the order of Steve Bannon and, yes, Donald Trump, a man whose values and principles are on sale, like in the bargain bin at Target. Maybe he's got presidential ambitions. If so, he's now got no shot. He told the Florida conference just the other day he wouldn't cower from liberals, whatever that means. We do know who he will cower and run from. To me, it's pretty simple. These people need to be run out of the political landscape once and for all. If the Democrats can ever, and I do emphasize ever, get their act together, it can and it will happen. Yet look at the damage that has already been done. And then there's the Secret Service. In a classic case of the dog ate my homework, the service says it no longer has a series of deleted texts for the period surrounding January 6th. The committee wanted them, that's the January 6th committee, and so did the Inspector General of the Department of Homeland Security. Alas, the Secret Service says, that information was deleted. Deleted and unable to be retrieved. Now the IG says the Secret Service must stop any investigations it is conducting so as not to interfere with an ongoing criminal investigation. That would mean somebody's looking into potentially criminal conduct in the deletion of the texts involved. This after the Secret Service took umbrage at the mere mention of possible wrongdoing. The service normally is extremely and I emphasize extremely, tight-lipped about how it does its business. This time, they may have to fess up. Even though the IG's office can't bring criminal charges itself, they can forward the information they have to the Justice Department. If that happens, watch out. You see, these are all instances where supposedly nonpartisan agencies of government appear to have acted in a very partisan manner. What exactly is the Secret Service trying to hide or cover up? 
what exactly is contained in those now deleted texts. Did it have to do with Donald Trump's conduct on January 6th? Was there something in those texts that would have linked him to something criminal? We'll never know at this point. Although I have to say, it appears to me as though, and, and you know, greater minds than mine have always said that there is a way to retrieve almost anything that is texted, uh, sent by the internet, sent over any number of different apps. There always appears to be a way to bring that stuff back. It is never gone forever. Yet in this instance, the Secret Service would have us believe that there's no way to retrieve whatever information is contained in those texts. And actually, uh, the IG's office had spread a very large net. They wanted texts going back to December 2020 through the insurrection, through a few days after the insurrection. I'm telling you, watch out. And finally, and I, I don't want to say I told you so, but Republicans weren't nearly done and are not nearly done in their attempts to dismantle American democracy. Again, hate to say I told you so, but here they come, and now it's the LGBTQ community. This is The Intersection. Wherever you are, stay tuned to The Intersection with Mark Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. You might as well call it the big rollback. One by one, group by group, Republican office holders and wannabes are trying to roll back hard-won freedoms for various marginalized communities. First, it was voting rights for communities of color, something I personally never thought would happen. Then along comes the pushing aside of Roe v. Wade, perpetrating a monumental gut punch to the rights of women to control their own bodies. And now they're coming after the next community on their list, LGBTQ Americans. The New York Times recently documented a debate among GOP gubernatorial candidates in Michigan, where they were asked if it was time to revisit same-sex marriage. None of the five participants in this debate stood up for this fundamental and hard-fought right. Another example is Texas, where the Republican Party of that state adopted a platform plank that called homosexuality, quote, an abominable, or abnormal, I should say, lifestyle choice. An abnormal lifestyle choice. The New York Times calls this supercharged rhetoric of the right. Supercharged rhetoric of the right. Yet these aren't fevered callers to right-wing talk shows. These are lawmakers, people with the power to dismantle gains made by the LGBTQ community through decades of struggle. Sadly, this nonsense taps into deep fears on the part of some in American society. Hence the idea that mentioning gay people is somehow grooming children. 
one of the most offensive and bizarre tropes on the part of the right. Further down the road, such idiocy, and I do mean idiocy, could nurture a new era of homophobia that could well be tough to counter. Tolerance is something foreign to these people. They take the positions they do because they believe it will win them elections, and sometimes it does. But they're strategic enough to understand that if you go after them group by group, they have a better chance of not seeing groups coming together to stop them. They currently have 300 bills pending in 23 states that would somehow restrict LGBTQ rights. Many of them probably won't pass, but that's really not the point. Those backing them can fundraise on the premise that they're restoring American values. In fact, these attacks are about as un-American as you can get. It's about time these groups who have been hurt by this onslaught came together, came together, women, LGBTQ, communities of color, come together and end this. Stop it once and for all. What was that old saying about they came for Catholics and I did nothing, and they came for this group and I did nothing, and they came for this group and I did nothing, and then they came for me? That's what marginalized communities, marginalized communities whose people gave their lives for freedom, are now facing as these folks who want to remake America and take it back to a time when people were routinely oppressed, routinely criminalized, routinely done in. That's what they want, and they're not going to stop. And finally, some good news. This past weekend saw the induction of seven former players into the Baseball Hall of Fame. Three of them, Minnie Minoso, David Ortiz, and Tony Oliva, are Latinos. Two, Buck O'Neill and Bud Fowler, were black. Fowler was the first black man to play professional baseball. The other two, Gil Hodges and Jim Cott, are white. All are equally deserving to be in the hall. I remember listening to Jim Cott's commentaries over the years as a broadcaster. He's certainly a great pitcher, but he also had a gift of making complex baseball ideas simple and digestible and did it with a, a, a level of humor, a level of wit that was rare in broadcasters of his day. The three living players, Ortiz, also known as Big Poppy, Oliva and Cott, are still with us. And they actually attended the induction ceremony. Congratulations to all of them. Thanks so much for listening to The Intersection. The executive producer is Kim Jack Riley, and music is by Tevin Thomas. Until next time, please be well.